0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 254. It's titled, Should You Be 100% Invested in Stocks? I recently received an email from Matt. He's a listener and a member of money for the rest of us. Plus he wrote, I have a few ideas for some potential future topics. One deals with your take on a book called the simple path to wealth by JL Collins that is promoted on many of the blogs and podcasts in the financial independence community. I read the book and began investing in simple index funds as recommended. However, I was never comfortable with putting all my eggs in one basket, as the book suggests. What is your take? Can investing really be that simple? Or is this just a better-than-nothing approach to investing for people who are not interested in actively managing their finances? Yes, investing can be that simple. You can put 100% of your portfolio in an index fund or ETF, a stock ETF. He recommends The Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, ticker is VTSAX. He points out it has 3,600 holdings. You're effectively investing in every publicly traded company in the U.S. And your fortunes are tied to the ingenuity of the people working at those companies as they deal with the many complexities involved in the world. And had you invested in that particular index or fund over the past 25 years, you would have done very, very well. Now, you don't necessarily have to just do an index fund. There's always a question of maybe invest in a basket of individual securities. I got an email out of the blue from somebody that calls himself Yerky. He wrote, For Jack Bogle, buy and hold is eternal. Your returns will be zero for the next 10 years, just like 2000 to 2010. Maybe, maybe not. He continues, what were your returns for the year of 2018? He's asking me. Negative 5%? Like Hold the Bag Bogle Index Fund? In the year 2018, almost 900 stocks have gone up over 20%. And almost 200 stocks have gone up over 100%. If you know how to buy and sell. For the year of 2019, there are over 180 stocks up over 50% so far in just four months. Maybe you have at least one of them. Maybe two. Nope. Well, yes and no. Yes, I do own them because I own passive index funds and ETFs. I don't own individual stocks. Nor does J.L. Collins own individual stocks. He recommends us one ETF. Now, I do not have 100% of my portfolio in stocks. When Yerky asked, what was my return in 2018? My returns were based on the philosophy that I shared that's also shared with the FI community. We talked about this in episode 243 and 244. The idea that you're trying to increase your net worth, this is after you're financially independent, by the rate of inflation after spending. Now, that can come from investment earnings. It can come from other earnings for whatever side projects you work on. My net worth increased 5% in 2018. But he asked about investment returns. In 2018, the U.S. stock market fell 5%, as Yerke mentioned. The global stock market, as measured by the MSCI All-Country World Index, fell 9.5%. U.S. bonds were flat. It was a tough environment to invest. My portfolio gained, just the investment portion, gained 0.5%. So it wasn't great, but it didn't suffer a loss. Collins in his book, and it's a, it's a very good book. It's a very good book on the basics of investing if you want to become financially independent. It's why the, the FI community recommends the book. But I learned something that I didn't realize. I've met JL in the past at, at FinCon. He said in his book that he met a guy on a cross country flight. This was back in the late 80s. The gentleman worked at an investment research firm. And they talked the entire flight about stocks. And by the end of the trip, the guy offered Collins a job. So he took it, a major pay cut he took. But, hey, he was going to get all this information on these companies because they had really bright analysts at the firm. He points out that each analyst focused on maybe two industries and six to ten companies. Some of these analysts were Analyst of the Year by the financial press. He said some of these folks were at the top of their game. They knew their industries very well. They knew their companies. They were talking to their suppliers, the customers, the receptionists, often weekly or daily. Now, they didn't get insider information, but they really, really knew these companies. Then he saw how they did. He wrote, and yet accurately predicting stock performance remained frustratingly elusive. He pointed out that these analysts were talking to the company. And the idea is that companies, management knew what was going on, that they could forecast to take advantage of their competitors, to make sure that their stock price went up. They couldn't. One of my first jobs after graduate school is I was a planning analyst and I worked for AT&T Capital. My role was to make predictions for our, or a plan, I guess, for our little division of the company. You make up the numbers. You do your best. Is there any reason why it's easier for CEOs just to buy back their stock as opposed to invest in new initiatives? Collins writes, suddenly my enormous stock picking hubris was clear. Somehow reading a few books and take 10K annual reports was going to give me an edge over not only the professional analysts who lived and breathed this stuff all day, every day, but also the executives who run the companies in question i could succeed where they could not suddenly i realized why even rockstar fund managers find it almost impossible to best the simple index over time and why more fortunes have been created brokering trades than making them i had a similar experience as i spent years researching And trying to identify the most successful stock managers, hedge funds out there. We had a 20 plus person research team doing the exact same thing. It was frustrating because to outperform the index, you need to be able to identify beforehand companies where the embedded growth rate in terms of their earnings are going to grow faster than what the market has already priced in. The consensus. What is the consensus of all the market participants think? They, as they transact, set the price for the stock. And the stock will go up if it beats, the company beats those expectations. And it's very, very difficult. But there are those that will continue to try. And if you try, you need to understand and ask one of the 10 questions that I discuss in my book that's coming out this year. It's who is on the other side of the trade. Who are you trading with? If you're buying a stock, who sold it to you? More than likely, it was an institutional investor. Perhaps one using more and more artificial intelligence, AI, machine learning, algorithms that are fed reams and reams and reams of information and make connections that humans could never connect to figure out what potentially will happen with a stock and the algorithm decides to sell, and it sells, and we're on the other side of the trade. We're buying because we, as Yerky suggests, want to be one of those that can identify beforehand one of the 100 companies that are up 50% this year. There are those that say you can do it. Another book I recently reviewed and read called Investing at Level 3 by James B. Clunan. He's the founder of the American Association of Individual Investors. He goes through and he talks about risk. It's it's an excellent book also. He recommends investing in micro-cap value stocks. And that's a good recommendation. If you're going to invest in individual companies, if you invest in small, very, very small companies that are inexpensive, these are companies that institutional investors have a hard time Investing in because they're too small. They won't have a big enough impact on their portfolios. The American Association of Individual Investors, they have screens, they have, and they recommend stocks. They show you how to screen and choose stocks. If you don't want to do that, why not just invest instead of investing in the total stock market? Why not invest 100% in small cap value or micro cap value? You could own the DFA Small Cap Value Fund. As an institutional investor, we own that fund. Recommended it. Ticker is DFSVX. It has 943 micro cap and small cap value stocks. Expense ratio is 0.53%, 27% turnover. I ran this through Portfolio Visualizer. This is a website. Since 1985, This particular fund has returned 11% annualized. Very, very good. Its worst year, it was down 37% in 2008. Its maximum drawdown, so how much was lost, was 61%. So from June 2007 to February 2009, the fund lost 61%. And then it took to December 2012 to recover. So just under four years. The standard deviation of this fund, in other words, how volatile it is by this statistical measure, how high are the highs, how low are the lows? How do the returns vary from year to year around that average return going back to 1985 of 11%? The standard deviation is 19%, so it's very very volatile. In 2018, it lost 15%. Over the past 15 years, it's only returned 8.1% annualized, and over the past five years, 5.4%. But over the long term, the fund has done very well. Clunan, in Level 3 Investing, writes, My view of real risk is not short-term volatility, but rather the possibility that the assets we expected to have for consumption will not be there when we need them. He continues, real risk is the chance of an investment loss, and there are better ways to manage that risk than turn to the ghost risk of volatility. I agree with that. I don't focus on volatility when I've done episodes on modern portfolio theory and asset allocation. I don't focus on volatility. I focus on harm, maximum drawdowns. How will this impact my lifestyle? which is similar to how he defines risk. Now, his conclusion is that most investors, by not having 100% stocks, and he recommends equity, stocks, or stock-like holdings, he says are the highest returning investment an individual can make and that we should be 100% in stocks. And ideally, we should use leverage to buy those stocks to generate even better performance. Now, he says if you're in retirement, you should have four years of expenses in short-term, extremely safe holdings, but the rest in stocks. He says if you're not invested 100% in stocks, that's like buying an insurance policy to reduce your return. You lower your returns by having non-stock-like investments, he suggests. He believes your return give up. The premium you pay by not having 100% stocks. It's just too high. The biggest risk when it comes to investing is losing all your money, 100% loss. So, if you use leverage, if you borrow money to invest, it can magnify the returns, but potentially magnify the losses. And, and he recognizes that. I know a farmer. A number of years ago, he was interested in commodities. He showed me a track record for a partnership he was considering investing in. I looked at the return of the partnerships, they had a series of Of different funds. They didn't have a track record that continued through time. It stopped. There was a sudden stop at one point. And I looked at it and I saw they lost all the money. So then they started again with a new track record. That's ruin. We need to invest in a way that we're not absolutely ruined. And that's so risk is not volatility, it's the risk of losing so much that when it comes time to retire, Our assets are not there. Let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. Now, if you're going to invest in 100% stock, and Clunen and J.L. Collins are very, very clear that you will lose... At some point, large amounts of money. J.L. Collins writes, Whether you invest today or sometime in the future, I guarantee your wealth will be cut in half, more than once, over those 60 years. You'll suffer many other setbacks as well. It's never fun, but it is the process and the price you and everybody else must pay to enjoy the benefits. Thus, the question is not, Should I invest in stocks now? Rather, it is, should you invest in stocks at all? Until you can come to terms with the harsh facts above, the answer is no. Until you can be absolutely certain that you can watch your wealth get cut in half and still stay the course, the answer is no. Until you are comfortable with the risk that come with the rewards you seek, the answer is no. If you're 100% stocks, the hardest part is to not sell after A 50 to 60% loss. And these losses don't necessarily all come in a short period of time. They could be over three to five years of losses. And again, if you're going to invest in one country, the US, when I got into the investment business back in the mid 90s, even before that, in the late 80s, Japan was in a very similar situation than the U.S. is today. They were on top of the world. They were dominating. And the stock market had done extremely well. In the mid-90s, the Japanese stock market made up over 40% of the global stock market. Right now, the U.S. is 55% in terms of size of the global stock market. Japan was over 40%. I remember a guy that I worked with in a temp job. He was buying options on the Japanese stock market and making a ton of money until it ended. I again went back to Portfolio Visualizer to see, all right, if we had invested in Japan back in the 90s. Again, Japanese economy was doing extremely well. And there was a lot of fear in the U.S. about how Japan was essentially taking over the financial world. They were buying buildings right and left in the U.S. The MSCI Japan Index from May 1994 through today has returned 1.16 percent annualized, just over one percent. Another fund, the Aberdeen Japan Equity Fund. This was the fund I, I needed to find an investment because you couldn't invest in an index, and I couldn't I didn't see an index fund, a Japanese index fund. They had a track record old enough. But this is a closed-end fund, the Aberdeen Japan Equity Fund. Again, I went back, this track record went back to 1993. I ran it through Portfolio Visualizer, and it had a 76% drawdown from February 1994 to January 2009. 15 years was this drawdown, and it's never recovered. So if you had invested in this fund when it started, back in, I guess, 1993, 1992, had a very sharp rise, doubled. You would have taken your $10,000 up to $22,000. Today, that $22,000 is only worth $13,000. It has never recovered. Now, maybe you didn't buy at the top. We rarely buy at the top. But had you invested in July 1997 after it had fallen over 50%, your investments would be worth the same today, about $13,000. So 22 years, you haven't made any money investing in the Japanese stock market. Going back to 1994, you've made 1.1%. Is that possible for the U.S.? It is. Is it a bet you're willing to take? I'm not. And we'll see why and why I do things a little differently. But again, you can invest 100% stock. It's a very viable strategy. I I know people have done it. I'm sure you know people have done it. But I'm not comfortable doing it because I am investing in a way that I don't want it all dependent on one country's financial system and one asset category. One of my favorite parts of Joe Collins' book, he talks about how he was in a grumpy mood. He read an article. It was in Money Magazine. He he didn't give the name of the magazine, but it was pretty easy to find the article and the professor he was speaking about or writing about. It was a famous economist and finance professor from an equally famous prestigious university. That's how J.L. Collins describes it. It was actually Andrew W. Lowe of MIT. And I talked about Lowe's Adaptive Market Hypothesis back in episode 170 was titled, Our Financial Markets Efficient. Collins describes, he says, there was an impressive photo of Lowe. He looks serious and imposing. He says, Collins, I'm going to tell you some of what he said, Andrew Lowe, and why he's wrong. Well, here's what Lowe said in that interview. Buy and hold investing doesn't work anymore. The volatility is too significant. Almost any asset can suddenly become more risky. Buying into a mutual fund and holding it for 10 years is no longer going to deliver the same kind of expected return that we saw over the course of the last seven decades, simply because the nature of financial markets and how complex it's gotten. Lowe's theory of adaptive market hypothesis, there's what's known as the efficient market hypothesis that suggests every stock, publicly traded stock, Reflects its intrinsic value, that it's impossible for any investor to identify a company that's mispriced. Collins talks about how difficult it is for company management to figure out what's going to happen with their companies and to forecast and predict. But the efficient market hypothesis suggests that, irrespective of that, everybody knows because collectively the wisdom of the crowd makes sure that every stock is priced based on a knowledge of at least all the knowledge that could impact that particular company can be known and is reflected in the stock price. And Lowe says that's not the case. Usually it's the case, but not always. He writes in his book, The wisdom of the crowds depends on the errors of individual investors canceling each other out. But if we all exhibit certain behavioral patterns that are constantly irrational in the same way, Sometimes the errors don't cancel out. If you use a defective scale that's biased upwards, averaging your weight across multiple readings on the scale won't give you a more accurate measure of your weight. While arbitrage and profit motive can exploit a misjudgment, they still rely on the ability of investors to recognize when a mistake has taken place. In many cases, this expectation is simply unrealistic. The history of markets is filled with rational investors going wrong with utter confidence in the soundness of their judgments until brought down by information just beyond their range of consideration or understanding. He's saying investors can collectively be wrong and it can lead to undervaluations of some stocks, certainly asset classes or overvaluations because investors, they tell themselves stories. David Tuckett. He's the director of the Center for the Study of Decision-Making Uncertainty at the University College of London. He writes, The prices of financial assets cannot be set by fundamentals, which are unknown and in the future unknowable. They are set by stories about fundamentals, specifically the stories which market consensus at any one moment judges true. Moreover, because the most popular stories judged true can change significantly more quickly than fundamentals, asset valuations can change very rapidly indeed. We tell ourselves stories, and the market can be wrong, and it's not always efficient. So what do we do about this? And this is where Collins didn't like the response that Andrew Lowe gave. First off, the interviewer says, well, you know, a buy and hold, 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio has done well returned about 4% from 2000 to 2010. Isn't that good enough? And Lowe points out the risk is that as individuals, we panic sometimes during these market losses. And we can't do that. And Collins and Clunan point out, we can't do that if you're going to be 100% invested in stocks. But then they ask Lowe, well, what else should you do? And he says, your best bet is to hold a variety of mutual funds that have relatively low fees, and try to manage the volatility within a reasonable range. You should be diversified, not just with stocks and bonds, but across the entire spectrum of investment opportunities, stocks, bonds, currency, commodities, domestically and internationally. J.L. Collins takes exception to that. It is a lot of work. He writes, let's accept the professor's premise that markets have gotten more volatile and will likely stay that way. I'm not sure I buy it, but okay. He's the credentialed economist. We can also agree that the typical investor is prone to panic and poor decision-making, especially when all the cable news gurus are lining up on window ledges. We certainly agree that it's not possible to prevent financial crisis. More are headed our way, so the question that mattered is most, how best do we deal with it? And he says, we default to this idea that we have various asset classes, we decide what percent to put in each, then you have to rebalance potentially And he says that guarantees you subpar performance over time. Because, again, if you put 100% in stocks, you're going to get the return of the stock market. And over most periods, the stock market performs better than the bond market, but not every period, but most of the time. So by diversifying, you are potentially reducing your return to protect against the volatility and the downside. That's how I invest. Because I do not need a 10% return. Nor am I convinced that the U.S. stock market is going to return 10% over the next three decades. If we look at the drivers of the returns, the dividend yield at 2%, potential earnings growth, which will impact stock returns, what investors are paying, they're paying, paying a premium right now for U.S. stocks. I assume 5 to 6% in stocks. I don't buy individual stocks, but if I can invest in asset classes that can earn me 6% return or more that aren't stocks, I'll do it. And I do do it. I invest in preferred stocks, preferred equity, which is very different. They yield 6.5%. I do asset-based lending. I lend at rates greater than 6%. I'm invested in private companies, venture capital, like we talked about last week, that have earned more than 6%. I own land, private investment, farmland. If you're going to be 100% stocks, Collins points out market crashes are to be expected. But they say they always recover. But sometimes it can take 25 years to recover. And do you have the emotional fortitude not to panic and sell out? I don't. That's why I diversify into other asset classes. And I like to invest. I like to research what drives the performance of different asset categories. I like to get the income from that. And I don't need stock-like returns. But you can invest 100% stock. It has done the best over time. But, he points out, there will be many more collapses, recessions, and disasters. And you have to be able to not panic and to ride it out and to hope that it'll be like it has been in the past, that the market ultimately recovers. Japanese stock market never recovered. The same could happen to the U.S. It could earn 1% per year for the next 22 years. And if it does, then that's the way it is. I'd rather be more confident in generating a lower return, 4 to 6% in my portfolio and have diverse ways of doing that. But it's not the only way. And I'm willing to make adjustments. I don't rebalance annually. I make adjustments based on market conditions. I look at the the universe of asset categories and decide which is the most attractive in terms of reasonable expectations and then invest accordingly. Takes more work, but I'm fine doing that work because I like investing. If you don't, it's a question of trading the time to learn to invest and run a multi-asset class portfolio versus the simplicity of being 100% stocks and managing your emotions and not panicking and being overly fearful. And that's what I liked about those two books, Level 3 Investing and The Simple Path to Wealth. They're very upfront. Stocks, 100%, sometimes leveraged, very high returning asset class, but you have to be able to ride the ups and downs. You can do it, then then, then invest that way. That is episode 254. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. Please sign up for my free weekly newsletter, email. I send you the links for each show. I write a article, an essay on money, investing, and economy. I only send it to those subscribers. It's a free email. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Some of the best writing I do each week. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. Simply general education of money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.